I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, later on, we'll be speaking with former senior Federal Reserve official Thomas Honig. Now, if you listen to Parallax Views pretty regularly, you will maybe recall a recent episode in which Honig came up, namely our conversation with Christopher Leonard on his latest book, The Lords of Easy Money. How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. In that expose of the Federal Reserve's policies during the years following the global financial crisis, Honig emerges as a dissident voice within the Fed who argues that policies like quantitative easing will hurt ordinary citizens of Main Street America. More on that later, but first, we're going to be speaking with Ari Rabin Habit. If you're not familiar with that name, he served as the Deputy Campaign Director for Senator Bernie Sanders' 
2020 presidential bid. In a short but sweet conversation clocking in at around 20 or so minutes, we'll be talking about his new book, The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders, a memoir that offers a behind-the-scenes look at the Bernie 2020 campaign that also offers up a rare glimpse of Bernie Sanders beyond what we know of him from televised appearances, town halls, and presidential debates. A good portion of this conversation will deal with Bernie Sanders becoming more confident with foreign policy discussion, and in particular, his efforts to pass the Yemen War Powers Act to stop U.S. involvement in one of the worst humanitarian crises in recent memory. Ari will also share some stories about Bernie that illustrate his dry sense of humor and his principles, including a rather telling exchange between Barack Obama and the Vermont Senator. All that and more in my conversation with Ari Rabin Havit, author of The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on the show, Ari Rabinhoff, author of The Fighting Soul, which is the story of being on the road with Bernie Sanders during his campaign. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. And I'm very excited to be talking about this book. And I guess the first place I want to start is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have an image of Bernie that they, they see on, on TV uh, and, and whatnot. But what, what's the side of Bernie Sanders that maybe we don't know? There's a lot of anecdotes in the book that show him to be a, a pretty humorous uh, kind of guy. And there's a lot more to him than just what was, we've seen publicly. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book, because I felt my three years on the road gave me this privileged position to witness one of the most important figures in the 21st century, but also to see him in a way that very few other people do. He's a, you know, he's at once one of the most famous and influential people in the world, and at the same time, very um, unknown uh, in terms of who he is. And the thing I always like to say to people when they're like, tell me the thing about Bernie that I don't know. And that's, he loves to dance, right? And yet you don't see that in Bernie Sanders, but like there were events where he'd just get up and start dancing with everybody in the crowd, like twirling people around, doing the whole thing. Loves, loves to dance, loves, uh, loves Motown music. And, And there were two kind of bookend moments in the campaign that I think to me really, I, I use the word about music again, really bookend the campaign. The first happened at the second debate in Detroit, kind of at the beginning of the political season, right at the end of July. We were sitting in the green room, Fashikir, the campaign manager, myself and Bernie, and he was looking um, not into it, kind of tired, kind of just um, like that didn't seem like he was in the moment for a debate. 
Uh, John Delaney, who, like most people won't even remember, was a presidential candidate, but was a presidential candidate, sent out this press release that was like, I'm going to go on stage and call Bernie Sanders a communist, blah, 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 blah. Jeff Weaver texts us and is like, read him the, the, the press release. So Faz reads in the press release and Bernie turns to us and goes, guys, uh, do you know that uh, Charlie Brown song? I used to love that as a kid. Why is everybody always picking on me? And Faz puts up, takes up his phone and starts playing the song. And, you know, fee, fee, five, I, fo, fo, fum, I smell smoke in the auditorium, Charlie Brown, that, that whole song. Bernie's up dancing around, like shadow boxing, um, just getting into it, clapping. And like, you could just tell that, you know, it just, it just completely changed his whole mood and attitude and was completely then went on stage and delivered what I think was probably one of his best debate performances of the campaign. The last day of um, campaigning before COVID on March 10th, there was this gap because we were trying to figure out, we had a rally in Ohio that night. We were in Detroit. We were figuring out if the rally was going to go because nobody really knew how to handle COVID at that point. And we were kind of waiting. To, we were, the rally was being set up. We were waiting. We were to go. We were waiting to see if the rally was going to happen. And Bernie said, let's go to the Henry Ford Museum. So a few of us, Mike Casca, Faz, myself, Bernie, were walking around the Henry Ford Museum, seeing the exhibits, which is it's a great museum of Americana. You know, they have like George Washington's tent from the Revolutionary War, um, JFK's limo, like all sorts of things, like, like just pieces of, of Americana there. And then we were there, we were done there. We still had like a little bit of time. And he was like, let's go to the Motown Museum. So we drove to, which is the old Motown office and studio. And we drive down and he walks in and, you know, he's basically like given the tour. He's like, oh, this song was blah, blah, blah. Now there was this person who wrote, and he's like seeing the album covers. And, and we get into the studio, the Motown studio, and we're with a tour guide and they start duetting on My Girl, which was recorded in that studio. And I, I took pictures of the entire campaign. It was the one moment where he turned to me and he asked me to take his picture. And the pictures, if you have the book, it's actually in the book. It's one in the picture section. It's one of the first pictures. It was the one time during the campaign. He was like, all right, take, take my picture. here." You know, so excited that, and I don't think people see that side of Bernie who loves Motown, who loves to dance, who is, you know, a real person like that. So uh, one thing I really wanted to focus on um, because I haven't heard it in your other interviews about the book yet, is um, the evolution of Bernie Sanders on foreign policy and his becoming sure. more comfortable talking about foreign policy. And I know Matt Duss would probably know a, a little bit more maybe about that, but uh, could you talk about how did he become more comfortable talking about foreign policy? And then let's talk about uh, his work on Yemen. Yeah, so I, a lot of credit goes to Matt there. And it wasn't what Matt did Matt, for people who don't know, is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, brilliant guy. Um, and what Matt did in part was make Bernie recognize that just like on economic issues, he's been right for 40 years. On foreign policy issues, he's been right for 40 years. You go back in the book, I put in his speech from the Iraq War in 1990, one of his first speeches in Congress, 
And you read that speech and you're like, he predicts everything that happens in the Middle East after that. And he voted against that war, walked off the floor because people forget Vermont is a Republican state at that point. And the Democratic Party hates him, too. And he walks off the floor as one of his first votes and turns to Jane Sanders, his wife, and says, well, I think I'm I think that's it. I think I'm going to lose the next election. But I had to take that vote. It turns out, you know, uh, now we're 30 years later. He was absolutely right on that vote and, and, and everything that came from everything that moved forward from that vote. He was absolutely right on. And Matt, you know, helped bring in experts, helped talk to him and show him that he could be as confident on foreign policy as he was on domestic policies. Um, and and therefore, that led to Bernie being willing to stretch his voice out on those issues and take the lead on issues like Yemen, for example. Could you detail a little bit of that story, the story of the Yemen War Powers Act and, and you know, his struggle with that? Um, I, I don't know if it was a struggle. I think this was, you know, the first, this was a, Bernie likes to talk about things in big phrases, like what we're doing is historic, right? This that's, was- That's what I meant when I said struggle, I meant uh, he's trying to get the word out and trying to yeah. get make change happen, but go on. This was a legitimately historic thing. The Senate had never passed a war powers resolution in this way. Bernie um, steps up and joins with Mike Lee, Rand Paul, and Chris Murphy and pushes- a War Powers Act bill. The first time it comes to the floor, they, it loses massively, and he just keeps pushing, right? And uh, finally, it's going to come to the floor and actually pass. And um, we, you know, there was it was one of I think the most significant uh, foreign policy achievements of any of any senator currently in Congress to pass a, a law like that through the Senate that says US, U.S. should not participate in this war in Yemen that most people didn't even recognize was going on, like and, and recognize the horror that U.S. foreign policy has helped create in Yemen, where essentially it's a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The U.S. is helping arm Saudi Arabia, but not just arming. Our planes are flying in the air, producing intelligence, refueling Saudi bombers, that are killing civilians. And it is a massive, it, it has been a massive civilian atrocity. It's, it's technically a civil war between a rebel group called the Houthis and the Yemen government, but it's basically become the Saudis and the Iranians fighting with each other. And um, Bernie, Bernie decided this was, this was a major issue. You know, 80,000 children had when we when and it's more now, but when that bill came to the floor, 80,000 children had died. It was a humanitarian catastrophe. And Bernie, Bernie really decided that this was as important as a, a lot of his domestic agenda. Yeah, I was interested also if you could speak about because the reason I'm asking about foreign policy is because that's sort of, uh, I, I think, the main interest of my listeners. And you have a really interesting story in there about a lunch with, I believe his name is uh, Jareed. Javad Zarif. Okay, Javad could you Zarif, talk about the, that lunch story? Yeah, sure. Um, this uh, this was, you know, one of one of the strangest moments of my life. We go to New York, um, and often uh, Zarif, when he was the Iranian foreign minister, um, 
he's very, you know, he lived in America. He went to college in America. He got his doctorate in America. Some of his kids were born in America. He was a UN, he was a UN ambassador for Iran and lived in New York for years on end. He's he has a lot of connections and friends in America. So it wasn't unusual for American uh, dignitaries, lawmakers, and others to to have conversations with Zarif. Um, Bernie, myself, Matt Duss, uh, one other staffer, and uh, and actually a, a, a member of Congress who a conservative Democrat um, ended up having being invited to lunch with Zarif at the Iranian UN um, ambassador's home, which is this townhouse in New York near the Met. Um, and we go to lunch and it's this really, uh, it's this moment where I'm like, I, you see Bernie in like those functional foreign policy situations where Bernie is sitting across the table from the Iranian foreign minister. And the Iranian foreign minister, I think at first thought he had like an ally because Bernie was saying the US shouldn't be arming Saudi Arabia in their proxy war against Yemen, soon realized, no, Bernie was just for peace and he wasn't for their side. And I think, you know, the Iranians were complaining about the amount of money Saudi Arabia spends on lobbying in DC. At that point, they were saying $250 million, which according to public estimates was about correct. Um, and how they can't get their word out. And, you know, there was this, there was this, and they're kind of going back and forth. And at one point, the Iranian ambassador kind of trolls Bernie and was like, you should speak to the Russians to get them to stop. And like, it just wasn't, it wasn't like a, like we, to get us to stop what we're doing in Yemen, you should speak to the Russians isn't a real, isn't a real uh, position, right? And they're going back and forth. And then this other congressman gets up, to, not gets up, we're all table, uh, kind of sp starts speaking. And he's there because he has a constituent who, he has a constituent's family where the, the the member of that family was in jail in Iran, and he wanted to try to advocate for that uh, person to be freed. And Bernie and Bernie looks at the Iranian ambassador and was like, "Oh, you talk about two hundred fifty million dollars in PR, free that guy. That's that that's good PR right there for you guys." Um, and it was just this moment where it was like he can really engage at this level and like kind of stop and. and if anybody thought he was going to be pushed around, what was amazing is, and I kind of didn't get into this much detail in the book, just because it would have, the narrative would have been not as good in writing, but, you know, he was parrying back and forth on details of the war in Yemen. He was very confident. He was, he was, he knew his stuff. He knew the facts. And, and he, this, Javad Zarif is one of the most experienced diplomats in the world. And Bernie was able to parry with him. And then the funny part of the story is we walked out of the, um, we walked out of the uh, this this uh, ambassador's residence building after this like five course crazy lunch. Bernie pats his stomach like this, man. Those guys are assholes, but that lunch was delicious. Um, uh, just you know, it was it it was like the good cap to that meeting. Yeah, I was gonna say there was also a point in that Yemen section that made me chuckle a little bit where. Uh, I guess you had a senior Democratic uh, leadership staffer asking if you had gotten approval from um, APAC on something, and Bernie just yeah, so, fellows, go, go on. <laughs> so that was, we were on, uh, nobody had ever brought a war powers resolution to the floor. There's 
The floor procedure for war powers resolutions is dictated in the law itself, which is very rare. But nobody had ever done it. So nobody actually knew the functions. There was no, the Senate functions on precedent and comedy. Um, not comedy. We'd like to think it functions on comedy, but comedy. Um, and there just was no precedent for bringing this to the floor. And so we had kind of an outline of how to do it. But, and so there was a lot of like stressful floor procedure meetings about how to do it. The night before it gets brought up, um, there was going to be a series of Republican amendments that we had to really talk through procedure and how we were going to do it. One of them was they were going to bring up, they just said, basically, we're going to hit you with an Israel amendment. Basically, to base to, to make Democrats take a vote where they can say, oh, Democrats hate Israel because we have to vote down every amendment, regardless of what it is. You can't you have to vote down every amendment. And um, we were like strategizing it. And I, I, I proposed a strategy. It was a staff. It was basically a staff meeting in the cloakroom. And Bernie was had to be in the cloakroom because the bill was on the floor and he was the floor manager. So he couldn't leave the floor, basically. Um, he had to hold the floor. So he's in the cloakroom, which you can be in there and hold the floor in this way. And he was kind of on the other side of the room. We're having this conversation. And I made a, I made a strategic suggestion for how to deal with the Israel Amendment. And uh, a leadership staffer turned and said, have you consulted with APAC on that? And as if he was Dumbledore, Bernie apparates into, like, I don't know how he got into the conversation. He literally like appears in the conversation, goes up to that staffer and is like, no one on my staff will ask APAC for permission for anything. And it's this remarkable moment. And first, let me state this, and I, I do think it needs this clarification. That staff member was doing their job. If it had been, and this is something to note, if it had been an environmental thing, they would have asked, have you consulted with the League of Conservation Voters on that thing. If it had been a, if it had been a um, thing about labor, have you talked to the AFL-CIO? You know that's pretty standard. But the Bernie, the idea is nobody's going to tell him his staff. Like he's not going to consult with APAC on his process. And I, and I think it was a remarkable moment for probably the most prominent Jewish politician in America to say to say that about the most powerful Israel lobby in Washington D.C. Well, it was monumental, too, because the next day uh, you guys won the vote, 56 yes. to 41, right? And, and it was because of what had happened between the two votes was Khashoggi was killed. And this also gets to Bernie being right. Bernie was going around D.C. saying MBS is an autocratic thug. Like, and while everyone else in D.C. was like, oh, MBS is a great guy. He's a reformer. Oh, we love MBS. And Bernie was like, no, this guy's a thug. Like, what are you... What are you saying? Like, no, guys. And then Khashoggi was killed and, and cut up with a bone saw. And suddenly the rest of DC caught up with Bernie. And I was like, yeah, that guy's a thug. So real quick, because I, I know we're coming up against the limit here. There were two stories that really stood out in the book. I don't know if you can cover them just real in brief. The first one was the Hannah Montana story. And the second was uh, the, the sort of condescending re remarks that uh, I think Obama made um, that get mentioned in the epilogue. Sure. Uh, the Hannah Montana story is just funny. Um, we got a call, was in the car with him. Somebody called me from LA and was like, Miley Cyrus is going to endorse Bernie. I don't actually think she ever did on this campaign. Some websites say she did, but there was never like a formal endorsement thing or anything. Um, but Bernie was like, who was that calling you? And I was like, that was this person from LA. 
they're saying Miley Cyrus is going to endorse. And I expected the next question to be, who's Miley Cyrus? Instead, Bernie turns and goes, will Hannah Montana campaign in Montana for us? Um, and, and it was just like, I, I'm sitting there and I'm laughing and I'm also like stunned because I'm like, how do you know who Miley Cyrus is? And he's like, well, I had to buy gifts for my grandkids and uh, everything was Hannah Montana a few years ago. That's, that's how I know. It was like, it was like, like just, and that goes to like, just this incredible sense of humor, right? Like very quick, very dry, very, like just a very dry and quick sense of humor. Um, the Obama story was in 2018, Bernie had scheduled and uh, asked to meet with Obama. He and I go over to Obama's office. I didn't expect to be in the meeting. Obama kind of almost like pushes me into the room. It was very weird. And I'm in the room and Obama's like, they're having a long conversation, went on for 30 minutes. But one point, which I will always remember was Bernie finally was like, I'm thinking about running for president. He really hadn't decided at that point. I'm thinking of running in 2020. What do you think? And Obama kind of expected this. And they start talking about it. And Obama says, Bernie, you're an Old Testament prophet. You give us moral guidance for our party, but prophets don't get to be king. And are you willing to make the choices that you would have to make? Are you willing to give up those pieces of yourself that you would have to give up? Are you willing to moderate? Are you willing to appeal? Oh, Obama brought this up to like a Midwest small business owner who doesn't agree with you on minimum wage. Like, are you willing to appeal to those people to win? And the answer was Bernie's never going to change who Bernie is. And, you know, was Obama right? Is, does, is that what it takes to win a Democratic primary? Well, it can be argued that, yes, that's what it takes to win within our system. But Bernie's not going to change who he is because of that. Well, I want to thank you, Ari, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, closing comments and how listeners can get the book. What do you want uh, people to get out of the book? And uh, I'm assuming they can get it at their favorite independent bookseller or? Favorite independent bookseller. Um, you know, shop there. Don't shop at unnamed booksellers who we will who 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 will name unnamed, but say they're owned by a guy named Shmefri Shmezos. We won't say who it is, though. Um, but, you know, prefer independent booksellers when you can. Um, and uh, the book is The Fighting Soul. And I, I really it's look, uh, you can you can give me your opinion. You've read it. I wanted to write something that wasn't just like a droll campaign memoir of like we went here and this is our policy position. I wanted to write something that was fun for the reader, that really brought you into what a campaign is like and really showed you who this historic figure is and something that was fun to read. And I hope you can tell your listeners whether I accomplished that. But I, I, hope I, I think you accomplished it in spades. So The Fighting Soul, please, please go buy it. Next up, Thomas Honig, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and a principal character in investigative journalist Christopher Leonard's latest book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. As previously mentioned, Honig was a dissident voice within the Fed in the years following the global financial crisis. Now, I should note that Thomas Honig comes from what I would basically call a small-c conservative perspective. And if you're one of my more left-leaning listeners, I think you should keep that in mind. But at the same time, 
Much of what Honig says has a lot of overlap, as we note in the conversation, with ideas that have been advocated by the left. So I think this is a rather interesting conversation. Uh, Thomas Honig is completely unfiltered here. I allow him to speak his mind and give his take on the fallout from the 2008 global financial crisis and the Fed's policies in the years following it. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Thomas Honig, former senior Federal Reserve official, a main character in Christopher Leonard's The Lords of Easy Money, and I should also add a distinguished senior fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. It was actually the Mercatus Center that helped to make this interview possible, so I would like to thank them at this time. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Thomas Honig. Welcome to Parallax Views. Thomas Honig, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Mercatus Center and also um, the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. I believe uh, he was involved with the, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City uh, going back all the way to 1973. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. So if you could, uh, Mr. Honig, could you talk a little bit about the global financial crisis and how people can understand uh, that crisis and its significance today? Well, the, <clears throat> the crisis of 2008 followed several years of relatively low interest rates, a fairly accommodated monetary policy, and a series of events that actually went back to before the 9-11 the, uh, crisis, if you will, the, the, uh, uh, the tech bubble uh, in the late 1990s, 2000 period, in which the Federal Reserve, when the crisis occurred, whether it was those crisis or the Asian crisis or the Russian crisis, uh, would uh, provide enormous amounts of liquidity into the marketplace. So they would essentially uh, print money, buy a lot of government securities, or in some cases, mortgage-backed securities, and provide this liquidity to banking industry who would then provide it to various um, hedge funds and so forth. And over time, this built up a great deal of leverage in the U.S. economy. And there was leverage, obviously, relative to housing at the time, because that's really what some of the trigger was for the crisis of 2008. But there was a great deal of corporate leverage, personal leverage in terms of individual consumers. And prior to that, uh, having all this expansionary period, then the inflation began to show itself and the Fed began to tighten monetary policy through 2006 through 2007. And when those interest rates went up, uh, that high leverage began to uh, have really negative effects on the economy. People had more difficulty paying them back. You couldn't borrow uh, to pay back your past loan with a new loan. 
And so that generated a financial crisis, a, a if you will, a busting of the housing bubble and other leverage around that bubble. And so that's what the Federal Reserve faced once again. And in this case, uh, they also provided pretty significant amounts of liquidity. That is, they bought a lot of government securities, printed new money to provide that and provided liquidity into the marketplace uh, at a substantial level. Their balance sheet went from basically less than a trillion dollars to two trillion dollars in several months. Uh, and so that put a lot of extra um, liquidity into the marketplace and had effects that at least brought them out of the crisis. The difficulty was, and then I'll stop after this, the, in 2010, even though the economy was in recovery, the Federal Reserve at that time did not want to take any chances on the economy stalling. So it, again, provided enormous amounts of liquidity uh, into the economy. And that uh, accelerated the asset inflation uh, and some of the misallocation, if you will, of uh, borrowed funds that I think, in effect, slowed the economy later in the decade. So that was the, the event was the crisis. The response was, again, providing significant li liquidity and printing new money into the economy, which had long-term consequences of asset inflation and then on to today's price inflation. Now, what were your, how did maybe uh, your stance on things change from 2008 uh, to 2010? Because I know there were times where you thought uh, the Fed should be intervening and you were, um, you know, perfectly uh, agreeable with that, but uh, you, you may have changed your mind as time went on or, or voted differently as time went on. Well, it wasn't so much changing my mind as time went on because at the, at the crisis point, 2008, I was in agreement that in a crisis, central banks do provide liquidity into the marketplace to uh, relieve the, the uh, deleveraging that's going on to help it transition. And I was in favor of that. I mean, that's really in the theory of central banking, that's what you do. You provide liquidity for solvent companies who cannot find the liquidity or cannot convert their assets into money in a short period of time. The central bank does that for you. But the problem and the difficulty was that by 2010, the US economy was in recovery. Um, the stock market started to rebound as early as March 2009. Uh, the economy of the U.S. started to recover, in fact, was growing again by the third quarter of 2009. And here we were in 2010 uh, acting as if we had a crisis by injecting enormous amounts of liquidity into the economy. And the quantitative easing, as they called it, which was the massive printing of money, was in full swing. And in fact, the balance sheet between 2010 and 2015 increased from a mere $2 trillion to $4.5 trillion. So you can see the amount of new money being created in a very short period of time. And I that that's what I objected to. It was not the purpose of the central bank to conduct crisis policies when an economy was in a recovering position. The effects would be harmful to the economy in the long run. Uh, and that's what I objected to. So I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. And I'm sorry for uh, saying changed your mind. I, I think you put it much better there. 
Um, so in, in this book uh, that, that you're sort of a main character in, uh, Christopher Leonard's uh, The Lords of Easy Money, he recounts how in 2010, uh, you voted no a, a great deal on a, a number of votes in the Federal Reserve. Um, so I guess, why were you voting no and why were the other members voting yes? What, what, was, what was the dynamic there? Well, I think the reasons given, I don't know, know person by person why they would vote in favor of that. But the, but the rationale provided by the chairman and others was that this was, in a sense, assuring that the recovery would continue, assuring that people would have jobs, assuring that the markets would, in fact, recover. Uh, and therefore, it was justified. And... Um, the, the majority of the Federal Open Market Committee agreed with that. I did not. Uh, I think that the economic recovery was underway, that you need to allow that recovery to take course in a systematic way, but not in a way that you're um, uh, pushing forward with a very uh, expansive monetary policy that I think can do more harm than good in the long run. And that's the that's a position I voiced to my colleagues during the course of that year. My concern was that by making uh, money that available, by keeping interest rates literally near zero, if not zero, you were uh, encouraging leverage. You were having the saver who received very little on their savings subsidize the borrower who was borrowing for very little. Uh, and that distorts the economy. It's unfair, number one. It also discourages, it, re, it reduces um, the return on capital so that uh, speculating by borrowing at zero and speculating on, um, shall we say, buying stock back by uh, buying derivatives, by, uh, by borrowing very cheaply and speculating in derivatives and other types of, of assets creates uh, bubbles uh, that will eventually um, cause more harm than good. And that those arguments were my arguments given. And plus, I was concerned that zero interest rates, it, it, it really changed the um, economy. You, you were no longer investing to build plant and equipment and become more productive. You were speculating and buying back stocks, uh, not investing in new expansion, consolidating, uh, that is, merging different companies because it was so cheap to merge rather than expanding the investments of those companies. And therefore the effect was harmful. Also, when you have zero interest rates, you tend to encourage asset inflation. So you saw real estate again, begin to rise broadly. Housing uh, prices began to increase significantly. The stock market began to expand broadly. And for new entrants into housing, it made housing more expensive. You may have been able to borrow more cheaply, but you didn't have enough for a down payment unless you levered up even more. And so the long-term consequences of those kinds of, of incentives in the economy would be, in fact, harmful. Uh, and I think they were. Do you think during that time, because I, I know in the book uh, that, I, that I mentioned, The Lord's Easy Money, Christopher Leonard says that uh, in a lot of ways you were often misrepresented or maybe misunderstood uh, with regards to your views. What do you think the biggest misunderstanding people had uh, about you 
uh, during your time in the Federal Reserve and, and your views on various matters related to QE and the financial crisis? I think that um, many people who um, disagreed with me or failed to see my view thought that I was saying that this would immediately increase price inflation, and yet they didn't see it. And I was arguing that it would have other effects, distortive effects in the economy, that it would discourage investment in real plant and equipment, that it would encourage people to borrow rather than uh, to borrow to speculate rather than to invest. And I think by just saying he was he was only concerned about inflation misrepresents my views uh, as expressed in the minutes of the or in the transcripts and minutes of those FOMC meetings and in my many speeches that I gave. Um, I was more concerned about the fact that this was distorting incentives in the economy. Uh, it was causing asset inflation, making it harder for new for for people to enter uh, different markets like housing market or even the stock market at the time, that it was encouraging uh, businesses to buy back their stock rather than invest in new ventures. And that was my concern. And yet they were focusing only on the fact that I thought there would be price inflation, which I thought there might be over time. Uh, and I reminded people in the 60s, it took from the middle of the 1960s to the end of the 70s for inflation to reach 14%. I said, so it doesn't happen in two years or three years, but it in inevitably can happen if you continue to print too much money and spend too much money on the part of the government. And that was uh, totally ignored by uh, many of, the, of my critics at the time, which uh, is, um, I guess, somewhat understandable if you're not listening to uh, the full context of my message. So for, for a lay audience, what was the ultimate impact of some of these Fed policies that you were warning against? And I mean, specifically for maybe Main Street America, um, what were the ultimate impacts uh, that we saw? Okay, with, with, a, with a zero interest rate and printing this much money, if you look at that decade of from 2010 to say 2018, um, real wages in the US economy did not increase at all. In the, in the decade before, in the 90s, uh, after a recession, they actually increased it about above 2% uh, on an annual basis. So people were improving their life. But in the period of the decade of, the, of 2010 to 2018, they were stagnant. Um, we saw investment in the 90s in comparison following a recession um, actually increase. Uh, I think it was uh, well over 2%. But during the decade that followed in 2010, it was a very small amount, less than 1% on an annual basis. I, 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 these are numbers that I think are approximately right. I don't have them in front of me. So I'm not, uh, I'm not those are perfect uh, uh, numbers, but they're in, ball, in the ballpark that make my point. In other words, real wealth for average America was not increasing that during that period. Now, because asset values were uh, expanding dramatically, individuals that had assets, upper middle class, uh, wealthier individuals who owned real estate, who owned, uh, had big investments in the stock market, who were uh, heavily invested in assets, they were gaining arbitrarily. I'm not talking about the, 
the in, the entrepreneurs who were building new businesses. I'm talking about people who held assets, and just by fact that they held them, increased their wealth. Whereas people who were living paycheck to paycheck was gaining nothing, and that was, I think, a very unsettling decade for many Americans. And I think that's also why you had so many, so much of America upset uh, uh, during that period. You had uh, much more significant protests, uh, uneasiness about where the U.S. economy was going and where they were going within that economy. So people were, um, shall we say, um, disappointed, uh, angry, even to the fact that their real wealth, their real status was not improving at all. I was also going to ask, and I didn't include this on my notes, but uh, you're also known for having talked about the the issue of um, too big to fill. And I, I remember when that term was uh, getting thrown around. Uh, could you talk about your thoughts on on that debate and, and where that debate ended up? Well, the, the issue of too big to fail was there are certain financial institutions and others uh, who are so big uh, and and should they fail, the impact would be so widespread and so harmful that you can't let them fail. And specifically, to, to the, I would talk about banks like Citibank. Citibank was provided a great deal of capital from the government during the crisis of 2008 and 2009 so that it would not fail because there was fear that should it fall, then other banks would fall. Uh, and should it fall, uh, we would have uh, issues on a global basis. And so instead of a capitalistic system in which those who are conservative, who run their businesses well, who are, um, con- uh, who are well capitalized, they survive those who don't fall away uh, in the marketplace. But in this instance, uh, when these banks were holding less than, in some instances, less than 3% of real capital against their assets, and their losses were well over 3%, they were insolvent, but yet they didn't fail. You and I would be, you and I would be required to fail, but these institutions, because they were so big and important, were bailed out by the government. And that gave them an advantage over other banks over other institutions who were not bailed out during that period. That's what I was going to say. It, it seems like uh, it's very unfair. It, it works against smaller banks. It's very unfair in any sense, even if it works against other large banks or, or regional banks who failed. Uh, it, is not, it is not how capitalism is supposed to work. And so if they're that big, my argument is they shouldn't, they shouldn't exist. They should be broken up so that they can be of a size that if they are mismanaged, they pay the consequences of any other firm. But if they're managed well, they reap the benefits of capitalism, they reap the benefits of profit, uh, and they can pay dividends to their investors who deserve those. But it's when they don't deserve that, when they should have failed, that it becomes uh, unfair. And people who, again, who are living paycheck to paycheck, the average American, uh, or the middle class who may have some wealth, but not that kind of wealth, they resent it and become, I think, disenchanted with capitalism itself. And that is harmful to the long-run sustainability of our market system. That's That leads into something I wanted to ask you about, which is um, you mentioned 
wanting to break up uh, these these big banks if they were too big to fail, uh, so to speak. Uh, and I think there's Democrats uh, like Bernie Sanders and, and Sherrod Brown uh, who were also interested in doing that. So I, I was wondering if you could speak to that issue of it. It seems like there could be convergences between people from across the political aisle um, on issues like this. Well, there, there, yes, that is um, that is very possible, and, and in fact, was a place. It, I mean, there were conservatives who felt that these banks should be broken up if they can't fail on their own. There were liberals who felt that way, and I think that is appropriate. Now, they may have different motives. Conservatives, because they think capitalism. You, you cut should out. Be you cut out there for a second, real quick. You said they may have different motives. Could you repeat that? Yeah. Well, both liberals and conservatives wanted these institutions to be broken up at the time. Now, their motives may have been different. Uh, the conservative wanting them because that's not how capitalism works. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Alan Melcher, who's since passed away, said, you know, capitalism without failure is not acceptable because it does not allow for the market to uh, correct itself and to replenish itself. Now, liberals, they felt it was just unfair and therefore that these people shouldn't receive that, uh, whether they whether they believe in the capitalist system or they prefer a socialist system, they think that they should be punished. Uh, and that's that's fine too, but their, their motives are definitely different. Uh, nevertheless, uh, these institutions that are too big to fail uh, should not be too big to fail. You should correct that problem. Now, it wasn't corrected uh, in the end. Both Democrats and Republicans thought that they could regulate them. And that's why you had this very significant legislation called the Dodd-Frank Act, which was designed to uh, allow them to fail without harming the economy. Uh, that, I think, is yet to be tested. Uh, in the pandemic, that certainly was not tested. They were bailed out once again. But um, that was a special set of circumstances, it is argued. Uh, and I understand that. But uh, I don't think the legislation that was passed has truly been tested uh, at this point. And I think we still have a problem of too big to fail in this country. So going forward, what would you say needs to be done to avoid uh, another crisis um, and to avoid what we saw from 2010 to 2018. Uh, what has to happen in the future, you think? What, what do you think needs to be reformed? And where do you see the American economy headed? Well, I think the first thing that has to be reformed is this, uh, this idea that the central bank can always bail out everyone and, and prevent uh, a, a correction in the market. Uh, corrections have taken place in markets for for generations, uh, it's part of the of the capitalistic system. Um, and to think that you can avoid that by just printing more money leads to greater problems down the road. So we have to get over that. Secondly, the federal government also has to be convinced that it cannot solve every problem. It is in fact creating new problems by trying to intervene in every instance. And let me give you an example of that. In 2010, the federal debt of the United States was about 10 or $11 trillion. After a decade or slightly more than a decade of new spending programs, new expansion of government programs, the debt of this country is now $30 trillion. And that has been enabled by a central bank called the Federal Reserve who has bought much of that debt 
and put it on its balance sheet, printing more money, that's caused us to have major asset inflation and now major price inflation. And that, that has to stop. You cannot spend your way to solutions. Uh, you cannot print money uh, to, uh, and solve every problem. You only create new problems. And until we learn that and stop this kind of excessive government spending and this excessive Federal Reserve printing of money, we will only make inflation worse. We will only make the returns to the, to the middle America, to those individuals who work, who live paycheck to paycheck. We only will make their lives uh, continue to be a um, paycheck to paycheck life and their real wealth will have a difficulty improving. So we have to address fundamental problems in this country of spending too much, printing too much money, and then trying to pick up the pieces later. And right now, if you think about it, we have 8.5% inflation. I think it will be higher when the next inflation report comes out. Inflation of 85 and 9% is a very regressive tax on the American people. And that has to be stopped. And the only way you stop that is stop spending more money than you take in by the federal government and printing more money than, than is uh, uh, than printing too much money to, to accommodate that spending binge by the federal government. That has to stop. I just had uh, one or two more questions, uh, and I, I hope I, we have time for them. Um, sure. And I think around 2017, there was talk, and I think you even made proposals that, that closely resembled the, the sort of uh, the Glass-Steagall Act of the Depression era. Could you talk about uh, what the Glass-Steagall Act was and why you were maybe supporting a, a sort of modernized version of it? Well, the Glass-Steagall Act came out of the Great Depression, and it was uh, its own form of breaking up the, the largest institutions. Uh, and what it did is it said, we're going to have commercial banks and they're going to have deposit insurance. And we're going to force that banks uh, that had both commercial banks and investment banks separate out their investment banks who will not have insurance. And they can engage in riskier activities. And they can fail, and some did, uh, but they won't have the government's guarantees behind them. Whereas commercial banks, which we use for our everyday deposits and our everyday transaction accounts and so forth, they'll be protected. So then in 1999, with um, what's called the Graham-Leach Act, that was ended. And both commercial banks and investment banks could join again. And what that did was it expanded the safety net, that is the government guarantees, to those institutions that had banks and investment banks, because you couldn't let one fail without the other failing. So too big to fail overwhelmed uh, the uh, institution's importance and required the government to bail out both the bank and the investment bank. So the arguments in 2017 and actually in 2010 were that if you're going to have a safety net, if you're going to guarantee, you have to decide what you're going to guarantee and manage its risk level and allow those who are going to engage in higher risk activities, derivatives, and you have to separate those. But the decision was not to do that. The decision was to have Dodd-Frank, and therefore you could regulate those institutions and then the regulation make them more sound. And that, I think, uh, is wishful thinking. Uh, I don't think it'll prove itself to be the case. Uh, the next time we have a crisis, 
the largest banks, which also have investment banks, will be bailed out in whole. And so we need to rethink that. We need to think carefully about whether we want an inst institution that is so protected that it cannot fail, or whether we want institutions that can take risk and can fail without the government having to intervene without the economy falling apart. So I, the last thing I wanted to ask you, it's, it's sort of a two-part question. The first part is, uh, what do you think the biggest maybe misunderstanding or um, what, what do you think people don't understand about the Federal Reserve, I guess, is the, the first part of the question I wanted to ask, because I feel like a lot of people maybe uh, the, the layperson may be mystified by the Federal Reserve. So if you could demystify it for that sort of lay audience. Well, the Federal Reserve is an institution whose purpose, it has actually three purposes. One is monetary policy. And its, its assignment is to provide enough money so that the economy can grow with stable interest rates and stable prices so that there is sufficient money to allow capitalism to work successfully, but not so much that it inflates the economy and causes problems. If it can, can carry out its mandate, and it has the discipline to only print enough money to keep the economy moving forward, and not so much money that you cause 8% inflation, then it's serving that purpose well. And when people see inflation that is 8%, they question the, the role of the Federal Reserve. Or if they see a recession, they'll blame the Federal Reserve for that. Um, that's unfortunate because capitalism is a matter of risk-taking and some successes and some failures. That's number one. Number two, it is responsible for assuring that the payments mechanisms that we all rely on are run soundly. And that is not as well known about the Federal Reserve, but it's a very important Role. And thirdly, it does have prudential oversight of these financial institutions, which if it does well, they will still take risk, but they should not take so much, so such great risk that it, they cause the economy to fall into a recession or a crisis. Uh, and so I think it is misunderstood in the sense that it should always bail out everyone uh, that has become kind of the the benchmark of the Fed, and I think that's unfortunate. Its role is limited. Uh, and I think if people understood that, and if they in fact followed that mandate, uh, we would still have ups and downs in our economy, but I think we would have fewer crises in the long run. The last question I, I had for you, I, I have a lot of listeners uh, from both sides of the political spectrum, although a lot of my listeners sort of lean leftwards. So uh, they may have disagreements with you on some things, but I guess, what do you hope that all my listeners, and especially those who who may come from a different uh, part of the political aisle, what do you hope they get out of the conversation we just had? What, what do you really want them to learn from this, regardless of their uh, political affiliation? I think that I would hope that in time, your listener would understand that the, the government, by spending to try and solve everyone's problems, and the Federal Reserve by printing money to provide the government the necessary money to, to, to spend uh, actually creates more problems than it solves. And that we need to rely on our economic market system, capitalistic system that allows people to engage, allows entrepreneurs to build new businesses, allows companies to invest, that they be able to do that. And then we will win in the long run. People will actually have jobs 
and they will actually have the ability to build wealth. But when you try and get the government to do it all, what you end up doing is inflating the economy and leaving people behind. This happened in the decade of 2010 to 2018, when all these asset values increased and it left a lot of people behind. And it's happening now when this effort to spend uh, more money and have the Federal Reserve print more money has led to 8% and 9% inflation, which is a very regressive tax on the American people. That cannot continue and have a successful economy. People need to know that. Governments should have a limited role. The Federal Reserve should have a clearly defined and limited role that in the long run allows the economy to work and for all of us to benefit. I want to thank you again, Thomas Honig, for taking some time to speak with us here at Parallax Views. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Ari Rabin Hat, author of the new memoir, The Fighting Soul, On the Road with Bernie Sanders. And, of course, former Federal Reserve official and distinguished fellow at the Mercatus Center, Thomas Honig. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show going with donations of $1, 5 10 15 or $100 each month. And for those of you who have been supporting the show, I am so grateful. You are the best. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.